Well, Michael left out a detail when he was talking about babies this morning. And the detail is this. Do you know that there's nine expectant women in this church and they're due between now and the end of uh, October? Okay, so that's like rapid church growth. And, and Debbie's looking for uh, workers downstairs in the children's ministry. So if you want to hold a newborn baby, you know, just go visit with her. Um, that, that would be excellent, actually, if you have the opportunity, especially the Saturday night service it, um, could use help workers. So if you want to attend church on Sunday morning and maybe do some serving on Saturday night, if you look around the auditorium right now, this is what it looked like Saturday night here last night. So that service is filling up too. So if you have an opportunity to serve, um, don't hesitate. Uh, I think that kind of church growth is great, but I, I think the other way that God's doing it is great too. And I want to share a couple things with you. Um, this last week, as I was thinking about the babies being born, I heard about um, Marla and the baby. Um, I was actually stopping and thinking about all the ways that God is blessing this church. And I actually had this thought occur to me. I wonder if there's a place where I could find to rent one of those signs that they use out on the highway when they're doing highway construction, and they program in the words that say, slow down, minute work. I'd like to program it and slow it down and say, slow down, God at work. And I'd like to put it right there in the parking lot so when I drive in every day, slow down, Mark. God's at work here. I want to tell you a couple ways that I know God's at work. And I'd love to take that sign and put it out on Hazlitt Road, actually, for everybody going by. Just what God's doing here is amazing. A couple things. We had budget meetings this week. John Palmer uh, chairs the Strategic Council, oversees the, the finance, finance group. And um, our fiscal year goes from September 1st to August 31st. It's an academic calendar for our fiscal year. So we're coming to the end of our budget cycle. And John sat down and, and laid the budget papers out in front of us and said, I want you guys to see the income for this church over the past year. And mind you, you know we don't talk about money a whole lot here. And John shows us the figures, and it says $575,000 have come into the church in the last 12 months. Now slow down and let that settle in for a minute. This is a four-year-old toddler church whom God has entrusted to be stewards of over a half a million dollars to serve missionaries, to help people who are in desperate times try and feed their kids, to disciple to do the work that we're doing. So when John shared that with us, I just had to look at that and say, that's amazing. Because, you know, we don't take offerings in the church here. We have these metal boxes in the back we call offering boxes. And there they sit silently. And yet this church is faithful to keep giving and keep giving and keep giving. Second thing I wanted you to hear. It's not just about money because we can't measure God's activity with money, can we? I mean, we can say God's at work, but we can't say, wow, we got lots of money, so God's at work. That's not the way you measure God's activity. So here's a, a real-life incident. I'm talking with an individual a few weeks ago who'd never been to church in his life. And, there, and then there's many individuals in this church, whether you know it or not, that could tell this same story. People coming here who have never been to church before. So this particular individual went to church one time when he was 20 years old. And when he was 20 years old, he had such a horrible experience in that church setting 
that he decided to never go back again. So for 27 years, he checked out on God. He said, if that's what it's about, I want nothing to do with it. I don't want to be there. But because of some life trauma in his life over the last several months, he decided to find out if this God thing is real. So he started coming here sometime after Easter, sometime in the later part of the spring, kind of going through the journey, watching you sing, watching people come up and receive communion, hearing God's Word taught. And over time, progressed to the point where he realized, wow, there's a whole lot of things I never knew about God. This Jesus thing must be real. And professed Jesus as his Savior about seven weeks ago. Okay? Now, we serve communion once a month, first Sunday of the month. He's never participated in communion before. So he said, Mark, I'm, I'm walking up to the table and you, know, you guys have the juice out and you have the bread out, the elements. And he said, I'm, I'm about to reach for that juice and I'm sure I'm going to burst into flames. Because he, he said, I've, I've lived so far from God. I've never had this thing before. And now I, here I am reaching for what you call the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. He said, I don't know. Maybe I'm going to burn the church down. I have no idea. And he said, I take the element and go back and sit down. And he said, I, I received communion for the first time ever. He said, I, I've got to tell you my story. This is what he shared. He said, the, the experience I had the one time in my life when I was 20 years old, when a friend invited me to church, the issue and the reason I never went back again is the way that that church handled money. He said, they, they did something that embarrassed me. He said, I'd never been to church before, and I didn't put enough offering money in the plate when it went by, and some people mocked me. And he said, so I just kind of checked out and said, if that's what it's about, I want nothing to do with it. And he said, you guys have these boxes here and you never even talk about it. Here's what I'd say to you. Those offering boxes that, through which $575,000 went in the last 12 months are a silent witness to the things that God is doing around here. It's one example. God is active among us. And so that's why we need that sign that says, slow down. God at work. God is bringing people to Himself. God is calling people. We're discipling people. We're watching missionaries supported. And it's thrilling to be part of it. I want you to keep that in mind as we work through this text this morning because what we're about to step into is very deep water. Some of the deepest theology you'll ever hear. And it's very difficult material. So I'm just going to ask that God would be with us and I'm, I'm going to pray with you that God would give us the eyes to see what we need to see. This teaching is going to take a little bit longer than normal. My typical teaching, according to the tech guys upstairs, is about 38 minutes. This one's going to take 43 minutes, I'm sure, okay? So if you can hang in there an extra five minutes, I'm, I'm just going to plow through this, and we're going to see Jesus confront some people head on. Let's take a minute and pray. Father, we're taking on a passage that is incredibly difficult, and uh, were it not for the work of your Holy Spirit, it would be a mystery to humans to be able to comprehend this. Let alone, Father, it's hard enough for those of us who name the name of Christ with the Spirit at work. It's even more difficult for those who are not yet in relationship with you. So, Father, we ask for a measure of your grace and your mercy, and I ask that your Holy Spirit would invade this auditorium. 
Give us the capacity to see what you want us to see. Help us to translate what we see and what we apply to our life into action this week. But for right now, Father, give us ability to focus on what you want us to see and hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're um, new to New Hope, you wouldn't know that we're working through a study in the book of John. It's called The Portrait. John 1.18 says that Jesus, no man's seen God, but that Jesus explains God. So no one's ever seen God the Father. Never had physical eyesight of Him. But Jesus explains Him. So we're calling this the portrait because every time we see Jesus give us an example of what God looks like, it's another brushstroke on the blank canvas of what our God the Father looks like. So here's where we find ourselves. John chapter 6 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And where we are at when we began John chapter 6 is Jesus encountering this massive group on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He went there for some quiet time. He shows up, and there's somewhere around 20,000 people there. They spend the day together, and Jesus feeds this huge crowd. Last week, if you were here, you know that we went through the dialogue that happened right after that in which Jesus left behind the crowd in the middle of the night. They didn't know that he left, and he walked out on water. A miracle, obviously, and intercepted the disciples in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And this morning now where we pick up around verse 22, we find Jesus on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So the evening before, he's on the eastern shore. Now he's on the western shore, and the crowd is left wondering, where's Jesus? So let's pick it up in verse 22 of chapter 6. You'll see it up on the screen as well. And I should tell you that the reason there's not study notes in your bulletin this morning is um, I didn't get them done, sorry. So um, you just have to flip your bulletin over and and write it down that way and and bear along. But um, here we go, chapter 6, verse 22. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Have you been on the shore of a lake after a violent storm has gone through? It's very calm, isn't it? It's very quiet. It's peaceful. Storm raging the night before. We're told according to the text, Jesus stepped into the boat and the sea went dead quiet. So the next morning when the crowd wakes up, they're on this shore on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and it's calm. Water's not even barely lapping against the pebbles on the beach. And so it's very clear, and they can look around and see, where's Jesus? We know he didn't get into the boat with the disciples. They left alone, according to the text. So they're left with two mysteries. How did he leave without us seeing him? And where's Jesus? Where did he go? So verse 23, There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. The verse 23 and verse 24 are kind of like a parenthesis. It's John giving commentary. We know that John's in his 90s when he's writing this. He's looking back and remembering what happened in this. This is a parenthesis helping us understand. There's a whole bunch of little boats that came in either during the night or during the evening. And Tiberias is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, the capital And so people ventured over when they heard where Jesus was at. So not only the crowd of 20,000 plus, now we've got this flotilla that comes in from Tiberias. They're looking for Jesus too. 
We don't know how many people, but here's what we do know. As many as possible squeeze into the boats and they head off towards Capernaum because they're looking for Jesus. It's very logical they're going to go to Capernaum because that's Jesus' hometown. They're looking for free meal Jesus. They want to be fed. So it's logical to go look there. Verse 25, When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you get here? They found Him on the other side of the sea. Who's the they? This massive crowd. I can only speculate how many people. We know that some people walked along the beach. Some people jumped into the boats. So added to the group of the 20,000 on the shore, we now have the people of the city of Capernaum added, plus all the people from Tiberias that came in the flotilla of small boats. So this is a huge crowd. And we understand that the discussion begins outdoors because it's such a huge crowd. But eventually, by verse 59, you see that they work their way inside the synagogue. So the crowd obviously shrinks down a little bit. But they ask him this really awkward question. It's kind of like, hey, you left us behind. Rabbi, when did you get here? Or more appropriately, how did you get here? We didn't see him leave. He could not have walked. We would have seen him. So what if Jesus was a political candidate? How would a political candidate answer that question? We know that Jesus was, they were forcibly trying to make him king. And he didn't want to be king. He didn't want to rule over them. So he left them. But if he was running for office, let's say he's on a Sunday morning talk show and they put him before the question, Rabbi, when did you arrive? If he was a political candidate, he might say, well, as you know, it's very interesting that you should ask that question, that there was no vote available, obviously, and so I had to use my supernatural powers and walk across the sea and rescue the disciples on the way and then arrived here this morning. But that's not what he does, does he? He absolutely avoids the question. Why? Because he doesn't want to make a bigger deal out of it. He ignores the question. As a matter of fact, he moves right on past it because it's not for them to know. Why? They are superficially interested in Jesus and his abilities. They're not really interested in him as the Savior. So he purposely avoids their question because it would be like dumping gasoline on a fire. They already want to make him king. So he avoids it. Now he moves on to verse 26. Jesus answered them, not their question, but this is what he says. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father God has set His seal. So he starts it off with this very familiar phrase, Amen, Amen. Truly, truly, it's a, it's a Hebrew word transposed over into the Greek. Amen, amen means truth, truth. Listen very clearly to what I'm about to say to you. So he ignores their question, and now he's going to lay them bare. What does he say? You're selfish. You're materialistic. You're looking for food. That's why you're after me. So blinded by their own agenda, they've totally missed God at work. And that's a human characteristic. That's why I say we need to slow down to watch for God at work among us. This is common among people to work towards our own agenda. So here at New Hope, I'd love for us just to say, man, God, let's see you at work. Let's forget our agenda. Let's focus on what you want to accomplish. 
they witness a firsthand miracle and they totally miss the implication of that. Is that possible for somebody who walks with God? Can you witness the miracles of God, the interworkings of God, and totally miss the implications of it? Do you know that the disciples did that? The disciples are just like us. They totally missed God at work. Look with me on the screen. Mark 6, 52. They, meaning the disciples, had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Talking about when the disciples saw Jesus making the food to feed the masses. Their hearts totally missed what God was doing. We can fail to comprehend the reality that God is in our midst. So I want to slow down right here at verse 27 and see something very significant. We're going to drill down into this verse a little bit. Verse 27, when Jesus says, do not work for the things that perish away, the things that don't endure. What's he talking about here? Because God is certainly aware of the need for nourishment. We're human. We have physical bodies. We have materialistic needs. What's he referring to? He's saying he's far more focused on our spiritual health and we shouldn't be so busy being focused on the materialistic gain. If you have an NIV version of the Bible, the word work actually occurs twice, but it should only occur once. In the NASB version, it's much uh, more direct when it says the, the verb work is found one time in that sentence. Jesus is saying, don't be so focused on working for things that I'm willing to give you. That's why he refers to the word give here. The bread which he's offering us. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. He gives it to us. And he says it emphatically in such a way that he says, on me, the Father God has put his seal. He has sealed me as the Son of God. Many of you here have PC uh, computer systems and some of you run Macs, but if you run a Windows processing system, you know that when you buy Windows software, I, ha I have a Windows software box in my house, and it has a seal on it, on the top of it. If I lift the seal up, you know what it says underneath that seal? Genuine Microsoft operating software. It's an authentication. Sealing that I have really bought the real deal. That's what Jesus is saying here. There's no higher seal than the seal that I get from God the Father. God the Father has set His seal on me, the Son. And I'm telling you, you don't need to work. Don't work for the things that disappear and fade away. Rather, seek after the things that I will give you. But here's where this crowd missed it. They pick up on the word work. Because they're workers. They want to earn the things of God, so they pick up on the word labor and they misinterpret and misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Go with me to verse 28. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? How do we do this? How do we accomplish this? How do we get to that point? It's not we. It's not what we do. So they're filtering Jesus' words through their own mindset. What should we do to accomplish this? What's the reverse of work? Grace. You don't have to work for it. Grace is the reverse of it. You can't do anything to earn it. You just have to receive it. God does all the work. You have to receive it and believe it. That's what we're told. So when they say, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? That's a pretty common question. Major religions all over the world 
are different from Christianity for this reason. We cannot earn our salvation and we recognize it. Salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, we can't earn it. Every other world religion says, I want to work hard enough to get myself in a position where God will really like me and perhaps He will let me in. That's the difference between those who name the name of Christ and those who separate themselves. So this question was even common in Jesus' day. Watch on the screen. You'll see this question that comes from a, a young guy we believe to be in his 20s. He came to Jesus because he had a lot of wealth and wanted to know what he was supposed to do to earn God's favor. Matthew 19.16 Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he's thinking, how do I get there? How do I do something that God will like me well enough? So that's the mindset of these individuals. We understand true salvation is not by works. Look with me on the screen, Titus 3.5. He saved us not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Do you see anything that says that you can earn it? Nothing there. It's not the work that you've done. It's not the deeds. You can't earn your way into heaven. Let's go to verse 29. Jesus answered them and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He has sent. Here's what you can handle, guys. You've got this massive crowd of thousands. Here's what you can handle. Right now, you're at such a basic level. Handle this. Just believe. Can you do that? Can you just handle that portion? This is the work of God. Believe in Him who He has sent. Salvation is God's work, not man's. So you can't earn it. That's why we say salvation is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Do you notice that Jesus says that faith is work? This is the work of God that you believe. Would you agree with that? Is it work to have faith? It is. It is a lot of work. There's a lot of work to sustain this constant thinking. God, I know that you're the one. You're at the center. So Jesus calls faith a work. Let's move on. Verse 30, they're in a total fog trying to understand what he's saying here. Verse 30, so they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Translation according to Kring, we want breakfast. Give us some egg McMuffins and then we'll believe in you. That's what we're really interested in. That's why they're there. So they say, what work do you perform? That will, this is the crowd who's just been on the other side of the sea. And they've understood that he's so powerful they want to make him king. How do they forget so quickly the one that they would make king despite the miracles, including the massive meal? They still want him to do something. So they lay down their terms of agreement. Well, let's broker a deal, Jesus. How about you provide us breakfast? You do something. What work will you do that will believe you? You know that that question has been asked throughout the centuries? God, if you would just do this, I will believe. God, show up, straddle the Mississippi River, stand over the top of it, let everybody see you. Then I'll believe. God, give us world peace in the Middle East. Straddle over the Middle East, then we'll believe. See, everybody's got conditions who do not believe. 
And no amount of proof, according to Jesus, will satisfy an unbeliever's appetite. Jesus actually said, if someone was to rise from the dead, they will not believe. Because their heart is not aligned with the things of God. So it's not true when someone says, if God would just show up and do blank, I will believe. I've had them say that to me. And I have to take them back to this text. So when they say, what work do you perform? They're asking for Jesus' credentials. They want him to authenticate himself. Prove yourself to us. And then they dare to hold up Moses as the standard by which Jesus should be measured. Do you see that? Our fathers ate the manna. It is absurd. First of all, they're trying to give God a history lesson. By the way, do you remember what happened back in the wilderness there? And that Moses actually provided for us? Moses came through in a situation like this. Sure, you had a good day yesterday, but you're no Moses. Our fathers ate in the wilderness. So Jesus gives them a bit of a lesson. He takes them straight on, and since they're so stuck on the food metaphor, He uses the food metaphor. Let's go to verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Starts off again with amen, amen, truly, truly. Get it straight in your head. Hear this clearly. And he's going to underscore it for him. I'm going to give you the four things he underscored. You'll see on the screen. First of all, it's not Moses who provided it. Second, manna was not the true bread from heaven. Third, manna gave physical life. The bread God gives is eternal life. And the fourth one, manna was only given to Israel. The bread of God, the true bread, is for the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. So they're still left in the dust and they don't understand this. Watch what happens, verse 34. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Okay, we're going to tie our bibs on now. We've got our knives and forks. We're ready. Feed us. Go for it. We're ready. They don't understand what he's saying. They're giddy. Lord, give us this bread. We're ready to eat. Come on. You can be our full-time chef. Constantly feed us. They completely missed the point of what Jesus is talking about. So here is where we step from the world of the narrative dialogue into the deep end of the pool. And Jesus takes them to school on theology and helps them to try and understand what he's talking about. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So he understands there's a real lack of understanding here. And he's very clear and explicit when he says, I am. Seven times John wrote down in his book the I am claim. The same name that God used for himself in the Old Testament when Moses said, who should I say that you are? Give me your name, God. God said, I am that I am. Jesus used the same phrase seven times in the book of John. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. So of these seven times, he uses ego eomai. It's a Greek phrase for saying, I'm appropriating the name of God. 
That's who I am. And here's what you need to do. These are his instructions. He who comes to me and he who believes in me. That's your role. You want a work assignment? Come and believe. Those are the two things we have to do. So what does it mean to come to Jesus? I'll explain this, especially if you're new to church. Come means the word repent. If you've heard the word repent as you grew up, you didn't know what that word is. Come means literally, I'm going this direction with my life. And I realize I'm going down the wrong trail. Repent means turn. And you're coming in a new direction. You come to Jesus. That's why he uses that phrase. So you come and you believe. That's what he's asking us to do. The two are inseparable. Two sides of the same coin. You have to come and you have to believe in order to engage with him. Verse 37 gets deeper yet. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. You may not know uh, in the Saturday night service that what we do is a question and answer period afterwards, and this gets into the realm of predestination. And we stayed a long time last night having questions afterwards because of where this verse is going to take you because the implications are very, very difficult. So let's take this first word, all. Who is the all or what is the all that Jesus himself is speaking of? What is the all going on here? Who is the all that the Father gives to him? Well, here's the word literally in the Greek, pas. It means the whole manner, everything that's associated with the gift. So it's viewing humanity as a collective body but a subset of humanity by breaking it down for us. He's saying all that the Father gives to me, so it's a gift, the Father giving something to the Son, so stay with me and I'll, I'll help you understand this, will come. So let's take that phrase. All that the Father gives to me will come. Jesus is confident of the salvation of those whom the Father has predestined. He doesn't say they might come. He says they will come. The success of the salvation of mankind whom God has predestined before the foundations of the world is rooted in the omnipotent God. The power of God who says, I predestined some whom I give to the Son as a gift. Now if you haven't lost me yet, stay with me because we're going to keep moving forward and we'll come back on this. Let's look at Ephesians 1 because Paul wrote about this. Ephesians 1.4 He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5 He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. What is this word predestined? How is it used in Scripture? Because Jesus is being very emphatic. God the Father has given these to me, and all that have come as a gift to me will be saved. So what does this mean, this word predestined? Let's look in the screen at the definition for it. Porizo. And here's the definition. To limit in advance, predetermine, determine before or ordain. This is a profound reality. If you name the name of Christ as your Savior, if you believe that Jesus Christ is your source of salvation, 
The truth is, according to Scripture, everyone who is saved is a love gift from God the Father to God the Son. That's a beautiful image. You are a gift if you name the name of Christ. And you are given to the Son, predestined before the foundation of the world. Now, it's logical at this point to step back and say, wait, what's the human responsibility in this? I mean, what about free will? Where's my role? Because Scripture says, according to what I read, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And it actually says, Acts 17.30, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that everyone should repent. Well, why would God declare that if everyone won't repent? Romans 10.13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's the truth. Salvation does not depend on man's will. Salvation is already in place. God put it in motion. It is put into action when humans appropriate it. So there's two sides to the coin here. We have a responsibility to come to Christ. Let me explain it another way. Is God absolutely sovereign? Does He control everything? Is He sovereign over all areas of life? Even salvation? Big question. Is God sovereign over salvation also? See, if salvation is dependent upon man's will, then it dethrones God. We can't dethrone God because He's sovereign over everything. Let me give you some examples on the screen. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 65. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. Is your brain hurt yet? It's hard stuff, isn't it? Okay, now you understand why Jesus said back in verse 36, if you just back up a little bit, when he says, you have seen me and yet do not believe, they don't believe because they cannot believe. You get that? God has not yet called them. Oh, whether they're the elect or not, we don't know. But at that point in time, Jesus says, you've seen me and you don't even believe. They cannot believe because the Father has not begun to draw them. I believe that everybody encounters a, a point at some point in their life where they choose whether or not they're going to reject God. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Romans 1 in which God says everyone's going to stand before the throne without excuse. If we can't have an excuse, then that means we've had a reason to respond to something. Something had to be evident to us. But Romans 1 says we're without excuse. So clearly, these individuals are not believing, and even though they've seen Jesus, they're rejecting it. So what we're understanding here is something that very few people would say to someone who's lost, someone who's non-churched and never heard the name of Christ before. It's very rare that someone would say what Jesus said. The Savior of the world is telling this massive crowd, He's telling all these individuals that they cannot and will not be saved until God the Father chooses to draw them in and bring them in and help them understand who Jesus is. 
This is what Jesus is choosing to emphasize here. So here's the complication. From our view, we come to Christ. From God's view, we are given to the Son. And these two truths are not incompatible. It's just very difficult for us to understand because these are the things of God and they are mysteries. So we've got two sides of the same coin. Does it seem impossible to balance this issue? Does it seem like they're at conflict with each other? John MacArthur has a great quote in which he summed this up. I want you to see it on the screen. Here is the incomprehensible interplay between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Only those given to the Son by the Father will come to Him, yet all who are thirsty may come, and anyone who wishes may take the water of life without cost. Just before the service started, Matt Hall asked me what the message was going to be today. He said, because last week was like really good. So no pressure there, Matt, whatsoever, obviously. And, and I said, well, it's, it's theology today. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, it's theology. This, this is pure theology. And so Jesus follows up this statement by saying, but whoever comes to me, I will certainly not cast them out. Those who come, no way I'm going to reject them. I will certainly not cast out. Go with me to verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. The implication is some will not come to Christ. Some will completely reject Christ. But of all whom the Father gives to the Son, those who are His, nothing can snatch you away. Nothing can take you away. Once you're in, God guarantees it. It's ironclad agreement between the Father and the Son. That's why Jesus says, the will of Him who sent me, that all of that He has given me, I will lose nothing. And I'm even going to raise Him up on the last day. That there is a last day is amazing. Go with me to verse 40. This is really clear, I think. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. If you look closely at that passage, you see who heaven belongs to. Read that very closely. For this is the will of my Father, Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. That's who gets the keys to heaven. That's who goes to heaven. Jesus is being very clear. Those who behold the Son and believe in Him, those are the ones who have eternal life. That's why I say it's very, very clear. Verse 41, Therefore, and and when it says the Jews... It's talking about the leadership of Israel. The Jewish leaders, they're very unhappy with Jesus. Verse 41, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down out of heaven? 
Do you notice that they're not addressing it to Jesus, but it's about Jesus? They're talking to each other, and they're grumbling. Their unbelief kept them from understanding. At this period of time in the first century, bread was the immediate staple, the major food group in the diet of people who lived in the Middle East. So I don't know what the major food group is for us here in the United States. I've heard it's pizza. I've been told, and it might be milk. I don't know. I doubt that it's vegetables, okay? So I understand that we've got our own major food item that we use in the United States. So Jesus is using their major food item when he says, I am the bread. I am the one that gives sustenance to everything. And for them, this is incredibly offensive. And that's why you find them grumbling. And they use a very specific word. The word is gongizo. I'm going to show you this word on the screen because I want you to see the definition for it. I think you've experienced this in your household. You've heard people murmur. Look at me at the definition. To grumble, murmur, murder complaints, whispers of displeasure. Here's what you should know about this word. It's an onomatopoeia. Uh, it sounds like it is, okay? Onomatopoetic. Still got it wrong. Okay. Uh, there's certain words in the Greek language that when you pronounce them, you have to actually experience them. And they cause facial distortion. So when you use this word gongizo, it's gongizo. All right, let's say that word together. Gongizo. So if you have teenagers in your house that are whispering displeasure, they're gongizoing. And it's murmuring. So what are they so upset about? Specifically, two things. His claim to be the source of eternal life. And his outrageous declaration that he came down from heaven. That's what they're so ticked about. Where did he come from? Five times Jesus said, I came down from heaven. And yet they're saying, we know your mom and dad. We know Joseph. We know who you belong to because they don't know the whole story and they don't know all the prophecy and how it was fulfilled. They miss it. So they think this is an outrageous claim that he's declaring equality with God. So let's look at Jesus' response to them. Verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not gongidzo among yourself. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. We're looking for brushstrokes, aren't we? We're looking for representations of God the Father. Here is a major brushstroke, perhaps one of the biggest that we've seen yet. What is this brushstroke? That God brought you to Himself. You thought it was something that you did. God drew you in. God is the one who chases after you. That's this brushstroke here. When Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So at some point, if you name the name of Christ, you heard the whispering of God in your ear. Mark, Mark, you hear the things that are being said about me? And I had to do something with that. At age 14, I named the name of Christ as my Savior, recognizing that I understood that He's the Savior of the world. Without God calling me, according to Scripture, I'd be at an utter loss because we have an utter inability to respond to God unless He calls us. 
So here's where it wraps up, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So he's saying, what I'm saying is consistent with the Old Testament prophets. And by the way, I can explain God because I've been with God. I am God. He and I are the same. I have been with Him, so I understand Him. So I have the authority to speak about these things. Here we go. Amen again. Verse 47. Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That really sets us up well for next week. This is where we're going to end today. Because next week, we receive communion here, the Lord's table. And it just happens to land on the same day in which Jesus said, you want to be part of me? You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Gross. I mean, it's, are we talking cannibalism and vampires? Because that's the reaction of the people at that time. They're thinking, what? What are you asking us to do? But they were missing the understanding, the metaphor that Jesus was talking about. His flesh, His body being hung out on the cross and His blood being shed for the sins of the world. But that's for next week. He set us up very well. And so you can see why Jesus has the first megachurch in history. And it's about to go down to just a handful of people to the point where thousands leave Him. His audience hear what He has to say and they're repulsed by it. There's a couple things I want you to know specifically before I let you go because I believe God wants you to know them. Two things that really jumped out to me. First of all, I want you to see on the screen just to make sure we really get it. Look with me at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread. If I said something three times in a paragraph, well, let's do it this way. I am the pastor of New Hope. I pastor the church of New Hope. The New Hope Church where I work, I'm the pastor there. See, you would think either I have an ego issue or I really want you to get something down, right? Okay. Jesus doesn't have an ego issue. He really wants them to get this three times in a paragraph. Why? What does bread do for you? What do bread and beverages do for you? This will help you understand communion next week. It nourishes our body. It meets our needs, our appetite. It sustains us. What does Jesus do for you? He meets our needs. He nourishes us. And He sustains us. You see the application? That's why He wanted us to get this. What else did He emphasize? Last thing. Look with me on the screen, verse 37. The one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. 
Verse 39, I will raise it up on the last day. Verse 41, I myself will raise it up, him up on the last day. Verse 44, I will raise him up on the last day. Do you think Jesus wanted you to get that down? He's going to raise us up. That's the promise of eternal life. You have a guaranteed ironclad promise that if you put your trust in this one called the bread of life who's coming from heaven, that He will raise you up. And we won't get into the issues of the last day today. That's enough for now. God is at work among us. Slow down. He's calling people to Himself. He's discipling people. He's meeting the needs of a community. Because our God is the one who sustains. How privileged we are to be part of His kingdom. And I say that with utter humility. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that You would help us to lock these truths away in our minds so that we can carry it with us throughout the week. Whatever activities we have going on this afternoon or tomorrow when we enter into very busy schedules, remind us, Father, that You're the one who's in control. You're sovereign over everything. That You sustain us. That You nourish us. And that You meet our needs. Father, I ask that you make this truth especially real and help us to translate that, Father, into bold activity on behalf of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Well, I appreciate your patience in sitting through the whole thing. I'll look forward to seeing you next week.